morning. If you have your Bibles or even your smartphones, and I hope you do, I would like to invite you to turn to the day's scripture reading. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. Let me tell you a story. Several years ago in, in my former church, during a, during a very tense season, our, our elders had, had brought a lot of accountability into a particular man's life because he needed it. He didn't like uh, the leaders of the church holding him accountable uh, uh, to the way he was acting in his life. And over time, uh, he began in very subtle ways. You could never really prove it, but how he spoke and, and how he wrote and how he communicated, in very subtle ways, uh, he began to threaten the church and the leaders of the church. Um, and, and so, uh, as leaders, we began to feel... Uh, threatened and attacked, uh, legally, even physically. And we began to wonder, uh, what is this individual capable of doing? We began to be concerned for the church, for its safety. So we took some precautions. We had safety drills. If this individual were to come in during a worship service and cause a problem, what would the senior pastor do from behind the pulpit? Uh, we, we began to seek legal advice on how to deal with somebody who openly threatens you. Uh, and I, at the time, I was, I was an associate pastor, but I was leading music every Sunday morning. So I was normally behind the piano. And I remember leading, leading worship songs and keeping one eye on the congregation and one eye on this individual. Just concerned that he could do anything at any time. It was the kind of spirit that he created um, in the church. It didn't last forever, thankfully. But during that time, one of the elders came up to me and said, you know, I'm a little concerned about my safety and my wife's safety. And we normally sit in the front. I'm not going to sit in the front anymore because I don't know what this guy's capable of. My wife and I are going to start sitting in the back. And every Sunday, we're going to sit in a different place. Now, I, I am all for a man feeling an obligation to protect his wife and his family. Absolutely. But elder to elder, I, I, I thought to myself, 
if the leaders are not looking out for the people, who is going to look out for the people? If, if the leaders are not willing to sit in the front row, wondering what is going on behind them, who's going to sit in, in the front row? I've been reading about George Washington, and one of the things that most endeared Washington to his men, the, soldier, the soldiers in the Continental Army, was the fact that he made himself repeatedly vulnerable. As a commander-in-chief, he made himself vulnerable. He exposed himself to enemy fire. He would actually, he was known for almost rashly advancing into battle in front of his troops. That's why he was so loved and revered amongst his men. Today, we're going to talk about elders. We're in a series now called the Leadership Chronicles because I'm hoping to prepare those of you who are members of our church to nominate and eventually elect, once they're vetted and trained, uh, to nominate and elect your very first elders and deacons. So today, we're going to look at the ministry of an elder, according to the New Testament. And one of the best ways that one New Testament scholar uh, said an elder should see his ministry, should see his role as being foremost accountable for the people of the church. That an elder sees himself as primarily responsible for the welfare of the congregation. Now, it'd be great if an elder were six foot, thr- six foot five and, and, and just ripped with muscles and, you know, able to bench press me and fling me, you know, 20 feet in the air. Uh, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm looking for elders who are physically strong. That always helps. It really always helps. But that's not what, that's not what we're talking about. Just using that as an illustration. But an elder must primarily see himself as, under God, responsible for the spiritual health, the overall well-being of the congregation. And actually, elders care for the church like a, like a shepherd cares for a flock of sheep. And what I want to talk to you today is about elders and the people who nominate them. I want to talk to you today about what is required of elders in God's church. But I also want to talk to you about what is required of the people who nominate them. And elect them to serve you. So what's required of elders from a biblical perspective is this. An exemplary Christian lifestyle. Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy was placed by Paul in Ephesus to deal with. He was kind of, Timothy was like an emissary, an ambassador of the apostle. And he asked Timothy to remain in F- at the church in Ephesus because of some concerns that Paul had there about the leadership and about teaching. And in this letter to Timothy, uh, Paul tells him, here are some instructions for how to identify men who are able to serve as elders in the church. And he uses the word, if you notice this, he uses the word overseer. You may be saying, well, that's not an elder. Actually, it is. When you look at words like overseer and elder, and pastor or shepherd or teacher in the New Testament, especially by Paul and Peter, these are terms that are used synonymously. These are terms that are used interchangeably. So that in the New Testament, you really see two types of office and leadership, that of elder or overseer or shepherd or teacher, and that of deacon. So today, we're going to look at um, elders. And Paul basically shares with Timothy three overall concerns he has about an individual's readiness and ability 
to serve as an elder. And the first thing he says in verse 2, that an overseer must be above reproach. Now, that does not mean that an an elder has to be sinless. Uh, I believe that's impossible this side of eternity. Paul is not saying he has to be sinless or that he has to be perfect. Above reproach is the idea that a man must not be vulnerable to accusation. When you look at the man's life, his attitude, his work, his ministry, his relationship with his family, if he has one, or his relationship with his children and his wife, if he has a family, his relationship with his co-workers, his relationship with other people in the church, with leaders in the community, you should not be able to find a smoking gun. You should not be able to find evidence of uh, wrongdoing. Uh, you should not be able to accuse him of something scandalous or of impropriety. But when you look at his life, when you consider his reputation, you should not be able to point a finger at this individual and said, oh, wait a minute. There's this thing. That's what he means by saying an overseer must be beyond reproach. And then Paul entails what he means by that more specifically. He says this man must be the husband of one wife. The Greek phrase literally meant a one-woman man. Some people like to use this as an excuse to say that anyone who's ever been divorced is not allowed to be a leader in the church. That's not, according to most scholars, that is not what Paul meant. A one-woman man, it means faithfulness, means faithfulness to his spouse, uh, that consistently he has been able to demonstrate faithfulness, marital faithfulness. He also says that this is someone who should be sober-minded, and self-controlled, and respectable. Also, he says, this is someone who should be hospitable, and that word literally means generous to guests. Kindness to strangers is what the New Testament concept of hospitality is. This is someone who makes his home available, who makes his resources available to others. Paul also says, this is someone who should be able to teach. I want to be careful. This does not necessarily mean an elder has to be an academic. It means that a man should be able to open the word of God and apply it practically and fruitfully to another person's life. I don't believe that every elder needs to be upfront, charismatic, uh, public speaker type of a person. But every elder should be able to take God's word, to take truth, and help somebody else understand it in a productive way so that that person can grow in her faith or in his faith. Paul also says this person should not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Paul goes on to say, he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? One scholar points out this has more to do with his parenting style than how his children actually behave. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, it's easy to look at an individual's children and say, ah, well, look at how junior behaves or look at how so-and-so behaves. That person is, has no integrity. Uh, if you read through the Bible, sometimes children just have their way of going uh, regardless of how uh, you parent them. Uh, so what Paul is saying here is uh, a, man's, a man's 
character should be weighed in his approach to parenting, not necessarily in the result he gets. So in all of these areas, a man must be, Paul says, above reproach, not coming under suspicion. But he goes further. There is a second concern Paul has, and and you see it in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, you have to look in the scripture, but the condemnation of the devil is pride. The Bible says that Satan fell because he was prideful and that that is his number one vice. And, and, and that's kind of the story of, of human history is we became prideful like him. And so Paul says, you know, because of the issue of pride, an elder shouldn't be a recent convert, somebody who is new to the Christian faith, new to following Jesus. And that's an important distinction to make. See, justification and faith, it's an act. If you're a Christian, you know that. You, you, in a one-time act, you say yes to Jesus. And you know theologically, justification is when God declares you as righteous in his sight. He doesn't make you righteous at that moment. The rest of your life is God making you righteous. And we call that sanctification. And we call that repentance, continually saying yes in every way, in small ways, in hidden ways to Jesus for the rest of your life. Justification and faith are acts. But sanctification and repentance is, it is a process. And because it is a process, Christian maturity takes time. Growing up in our faith takes time. And there is a difference between having status and knowledge and having seasoned experience. Is that right? I'm not a military man, but those of you who are in military, enlisted troops feel a certain way about fresh young officers who have just graduated from military school. They have status, they have knowledge, but they have yet to gain experience. Uh, My wife was a teacher. There is a difference between having a degree and having a license and staring in front of, staring at children Uh, for hundreds of days, your first year of teaching. And as you become seasoned in your experience, you begin to gain composure. And you know what to do in difficult situations because you've been through them before. And so Paul says he must not be a recent convert. There's a third concern that Paul has, and you see it in verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, what does that mean, that he would fall into the snare of the devil? Well, other places in Scripture describe Satan as a prowling lion looking for somebody to devour, looking for a weak, lonely person to attack on which to pray. And so a good reputation in the community, right? Imagine imagine the church... Imagine the church asking a man who's being vetted to become a leader, asking his employer, could you give me a good report on this person? Or a neighbor on this man's street, could you give me a good report about this person? See, a good reputation in the community is evidence that a man is not a hypocrite. If a man has withstood temptations in life and in the world, if a man has avoided scandals that would tarnish his reputation, that would tarnish the name of Jesus, that would tarnish the reputation of the church that he leads, 
Well, now he's worthy, Paul says, to be in leadership. So, in all of these ways, Paul says, this is what an elder looks like. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want to open it up to your, to your thoughts. As you look at these verses, what stands out to you as interesting or notable or memorable? What stands out to you? I'm glad to see it's all commonplace. Yeah, I see a hand. Nowhere does it specifically talk about age. Good, good. Like, it's not like, yeah, when you're 38 or, you know, when you're 45, uh, you can serve. Well said. There's a, similar, there's a similar passage in Paul's letter to Titus where there are many, it's very similar, and, and yet he doesn't say to Titus, uh, the person must not be a new convert. Uh, so scholars believe that perhaps the church in Crete was younger by age or newer as a congregation than the church in Ephesus, and they had a smaller pool of people from which to choose. Uh, look, if, if this church were just full of 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, we would have to find elders uh, amongst all 20 and 30-year-olds. As it is, we have 90-year-olds. No, just kidding. Uh, as, as it is, we have more than 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds here, and, and so it may not apply in the same way. But Dejan makes a good point. There isn't a particular age requirement. You're looking at an individual's maturity in the faith. Great point. Great point. Other notable things you saw, takeaways. What was striking or interesting to you? Okay, so the the... the what impressed upon you is, was the idea of, of, of being, uh, being able to rise above hypocrisy and seeing the consistency in, in behavior, consistency in lifestyle, both inside and outside of the church. Thank you. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, what is a recent convert? Uh, that's, that's very, I, I think you kind of answered your own question. You just said, as some people mature more quickly than others. I, I think you, you can't just say, well, this person's only been a Christian or followed, followed Christ for two years. Uh, you have to look into the person's track record in those two years. Uh, you may be following Christ for 30 years and still be very immature. Uh, so, so I don't have a direct way of answering that question. Uh, the church needs to use discernment and wisdom in looking. And that's why Paul just doesn't say you can't pick a recent convert. You have to balance that with all of the other advice he's giving. And then you'd be in a better shape to know, is, is this somebody who has, is mature enough in his faith uh, to take on this burden? Because it's not a perk. In the world, leadership is seen as a perk. In the church, it's a burden. It's a joyful, it's a wonderful burden, but it's a burden. Uh, there may have been one or two more hands up. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, that is very helpful. So, so the best LTs are the ones that, that, that were enlisted men, in, in, enlisted soldiers. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thanks for the very good thoughts. What's required of elders is, as Paul is showing us, an exemplary Christian lifestyle. What's required of the church, of those of us who nominate them, is, the ability, is being able to discern between ability and character. That's what we need. To be able to discern between ability and raw talent and intelligence and character. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson loves to say about this passage, as, as you consider these requirements, he says, what is so remarkable 
about the New Testament's qualifications for leadership are that they are unremarkable. Because he's not talking, he's not talking about miracles. He's not talking about you know, parting the Red Sea here or, or raising the dead or, or healing the sick. These are very practical Christian traits. You may be saying to yourself, wait a minute, every Christian should live like this. And that's the point. Paul's point is you, you find people who are examples of what it is to follow Jesus Christ. And by the way, uh, one of my professors wrote a commentary on, on 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, Bill Mounts. And he said, Paul is not giving Timothy a checklist here. This is not a technical checklist that Tim- Timothy has to check off every single trait. Uh, Paul is, is offering something more than a checklist. He's offering a character sketch. He's painting a picture of what a person should look, the type of person that the church should be looking for. Not a formulaic equation, but a picture of a person. A person who, in verse 5, will care, will care for God's church. Timothy Whitmer wrote a book, and we actually have it on, on our book table about the ministry of elders, and it's called The Shepherd Leader. He uses Psalm 23 to give a picture of what the ministry of an elder should be. Uh, It should be that of a shepherd. And actually, that's what David calls his God. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And Whitmer likes to say, as a shepherd tends for the sheep, an elder needs to know the congregation personally. An elder needs to feed the congregation, and this means the word of God. This means biblical truth and wisdom, being able to impart it in a helpful way. An elder leads, as David's shepherd leads him through the wilderness, to places of safety and to places of nourishment, even into danger. Uh, So an elder must lead God's people, Whitmer says. And then finally, an elder must protect the church. Physically, well, if it comes to it, (laughs) if it comes to it. uh, But specifically, protecting God's church has to do with false doctrine. It has, to do, it has to do with allowing um, worldviews that undermine the gospel of grace and undermine uh, the truth of Scripture uh, to leak into the church and take over. Paul, you know, it, it is the elder's role to protect the church against false teaching. And in biblical terms, wolves, protect the church from wolves who would come in and not care for the flock but damage it. And sometimes wolves are disguised as other shepherds or other sheep. And the elder must have discernment and readiness to be able to protect the church against them and against their ideas. So Whitmer says an elder knows the church, an elder feeds the church and leads the church and protects the church. So I want to encourage you, especially if you're a member of our church. If you're not, that's fine. I'm glad you're here and I hope you keep coming back and I hope you learn along with us these refreshing concepts 
of leadership, biblical leadership. But I, I, I pray that you would pray for and look for men who can humbly and carefully shepherd the church. Shepherd the church. Some churches make a huge mistake. Many churches make this mistake. They select men for leadership because those men are successful in their occupations. Because those men are, um, are, are well-known for what they do in their jobs. Or because those men have accumulated wealth. But you can't manage people through the valley of the shadow of death. You cannot administrate people through death's dark valley. You have, to, you have to lead them. You have to walk with them through these dark places in their lives. We need administration. We need management. We need that. But the, a leader needs to walk with people through darkness. So the Bible requires men who are, yeah, do we want talented people? Of course. But, but that's kind of up to God. What the Bible says you need more than talent is goodness. You don't just need men who are talented. You need men who are good. And that's why Paul calls this whole idea of being an elder a noble task. The word noble, it meant good. It meant beautiful. And Paul's saying this is a beautiful thing. This task is a beautiful thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a beautiful thing because here's an individual who exemplifies a godly life to the people. So pray for men like that. Leaders who desire to be remarkable end up feeding on the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. And God condemned this. The prophet Ezekiel shared the Lord's words to shepherds in Israel who had not taken care of their people. It's a fascinating place in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 34. Read the whole chapter this week if you can find it. God condemns through Ezekiel Israel's shepherds for not feeding the sheep, rather just feeding themselves. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for or seek them. So what's required of the church is to ordain men who understand the heart of God, who understand that God has the heart of a shepherd. Yes, he is a king. Yes, he is the creator. Yes, he is a judge. But as David understood, and David went through a lot, he's a shepherd. And the church needs members who, who look for men who know that God has the heart of the shepherd and their heart is being molded after God's heart. And remember how we, David is known as the man after God's heart. And this is one of the ways David understood the God of the Bible. He's a shepherd and, and so David knew, I have to shepherd my people because my creator shepherds me. 
God is looking for men to ordain who understand the heart of God, that God is a shepherd. God went on to say in Ezekiel chapter 34, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And you, he ends Ezekiel chapter 34, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pastor, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. And then Jesus came, not as a king, not as a general, not as an entrepreneur, not as a scholar. He came as a carpenter. I mean, he was born into a poor family and, and he was a refugee. And he grows up as a carpenter. He grows up unnoticed for almost 30 years. And Matthew chapter 9 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, Matthew wrote, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew was mostly writing to a Jewish audience and he knew, he knew that they were thinking about the failed shepherds of the Old Testament. And Jesus shows up and he sees God's sheep scattered. And Matthew says, he had compassion on the crowds. And it was in John's gospel, a different place, John chapter 10, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, now think about, think about this. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not, oh, I'm sorry, I misread that. Where is it? He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus later said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We should expect that our earthly leaders are going to be imperfect. It is not, if you, if you are expecting a pastor, an elder, or a, a leader figure in your life to be the person that somebody else never was to you, you are setting yourself up for failure. You are setting them up for failure. You're going to have a hard life because people, leaders are going to ruin your expectations. They're not going to live up to your expectations. I won't. We have to anticipate that even the most commendable shepherds and leaders in the church are, like sheep, prone 
to wander. Right? We're, we're called sheep in the Bible for a reason. And it's not a flattering reason. <laughs> it's not a flattering reason. We're all sheep. And sheep are prone to wander, which is why they have a shepherd. We can expect imperfection in leadership. We must anticipate that even leaders are prone to wander. But Jesus never strayed. He said, I am the good shepherd. And he proved it. Jesus never strayed from his mission to defend the sheep, to rescue the sheep, to gather God's sheep back. By the way, that's what missions and evangelism is all about. Gathering God's lost called sheep from all over the world and even in your community. Jesus never strayed from his mission as a shepherd. And Jesus made himself vulnerable. Jesus went into the darkest place and he suffered alone. The sheep were scattered, literally, because his apostles all left him and one of them ran away naked. He was so scared. But Jesus, when his sheep were scattered, he stood the test. He remained faithful and he became a sheep himself. If you're new to Christianity, the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God because Jesus was sacrificed in our place. And that's why Jesus is the most able shepherd. Because he used to be an enlisted, an enlistee. He knows what it is to be a soldier. He knows what it is, he knows what it is to be nothing. He knows what it is to be completely vulnerable. And he says that he and the Father are one. And he says that nobody can snatch you out of his hand. If you belong to Jesus, nobody, nothing, not even you, can snatch you out of his hand. And so there is one true shepherd. And every leader in the church is just his under-shepherd. Is just a steward of the sheep that he died for. And is coming back to gather again. So elders care for the church like a shepherd cares for a flock. So let's pray for people who see themselves this way. Let's pray for leaders who follow the good shepherd and rely upon him. Let's, let's pray for men who will serve as under shepherds, who feel like they're being entrusted with sheep that Jesus died for. And Jesus holds them accountable and responsible for the condition of his sheep until he returns for them. And that, in a very simple way, that is just the beginning of understanding what the role and what the ministry of an elder is. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for our Savior Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep who went into harm's way to rescue to rescue his own. Lord, I ask for me and uh, for those whom you will call uh, for the hearts of a shepherd uh, that we would not waste uh, the ministry that you have given to us, uh, but, Father, that we uh, would love and know and feed and protect and lead your sheep uh, as you lead us. Uh, Father, build this church up in a healthy way and give us wisdom, and give us discernment. And we thank you uh, that we're at a place in the life of, of our church where uh, we are now able to ask you for practical wisdom and biblical guidance uh, as, we look, uh, as, as we look towards uh, raising up our own leaders. Thank you. Uh, 
and thank you for Jesus Christ. It's in his name, the name of the good shepherd, that we praise and worship you. Amen.